Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, this is Ben. You're listening to episode 86 of my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Many thanks for joining me and welcome along. As always, my chat this week is with one of the world's most esteemed and respected photojournalists and conflict photographers, Ron Haviv. Before I introduce Ron properly, a little bit of housekeeping as usual. First off, many of you will have been following the case of the renowned Bangladeshi photojournalist and social activist Shahid al-Alam, who was recently arrested and detained by the Bangladeshi authorities for no good reason whatsoever, unless you count the desire to suppress free speech at all costs, in a flagrant human rights violation. If you're not aware of the case, please make it your business to find out more about it and support Shahid al cause. There's a petition on change.org that you can sign in about 30 seconds flat. Just go to their website and search Shahid al-Alam. That's S-H-A-H-I-D-U-L-A-L-A-M. And please share the story of Shahid plight on social media whenever you can using the hashtag Free Shahid al-Alam. This kind of flagrant, intolerable bullshit is a disgrace, as we all know, and the only thing we can really do is collectively register our disgust in the hope that the powers that be are shamed and embarrassed into backing down from their actions. So you can make a little difference by adding your own small voice, I think, anyway. If you enjoy this podcast, you think it's worth the price of a cup of coffee per episode, then please do sign up for a small recurring monthly subscription, or if you prefer, make a larger occasional donation at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice. Do please leave a positive review on iTunes so that others may find out about it. And if you should happen to need a new website because your current one is a load of shite, uh, but you can't face sorting it out, I will happily do the whole darn thing for you using the Squarespace platform for a very competitive rate. It's funny, it does astonish me how many really top-notch and in some cases well-known photographers, no names, no pack drill, still have ancient, neglected, horrible-looking, badly designed websites. And you know, maybe it's because one could argue that we're in a sort of post-website world in a way and that it's not even necessary to have one anymore. Personally, I think that's baloney. I still think it's the absolutely best possible way of collating, presenting and sharing your work with your audience and the wider world. And it seems insane in this day and age. Uh, to do that in a way that, or not to do that in a way that is easily navigable, well-designed, user-friendly. What do I know? I'm not trying to sell my services there, I'm just uh, making a comment. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the fabulous Charcoal Book Club, the world's first book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send hand-picked books directly to your door. Whether you're a professional artist or photographer with a stock library, or a novice who's just beginning to build their collection, Charcoal Book Club is an easy and affordable way to stay up to date on the most essential work in contemporary photography. The club offers free shipping to the UK, Canada and the US, and members get exclusive perks such as signed copies, access to rare titled, members-only pricing in their online bookstore, and more. Charcoal are extending a very special introductory offer exclusively to small voice listeners when you sign up any photo book of your choice from their library for free. Go to charcoalbookclub.com, use the special code of small voice when you sign up to receive your free book for the latest and greatest photo books. Deliver to your door with free shipping and no hassles. Check out the charcoalbookclub.com where they are still on a mission to inform the mind and inspire the soul. 
So Ron Haviv is a co-founder of the photo agency Seven and an Emmy-nominated, award-winning photojournalist dedicated to documenting conflict and raising awareness about human rights issues around the globe. In the last three decades, Ron has covered more than 25 conflicts and worked in over 100 countries. He's published three critically acclaimed photo books. His first, Blood and Honey, a Balkan war journal, was called one of the best non-fiction books of the year by the Los Angeles Times and a chilling but vastly important record of a people suffering by Newsweek. His two other monographs are Afghanistan, The Road to Kabul, and Haiti, 12th of January 2010. Ron has produced an unflinching record of the injustices of war, and his photography has had a singular impact. His work in the Balkans, which spanned over a decade of conflict, was used as evidence to indict and convict war criminals at the International Tribunal in The Hague. And President George W. Bush cited his chilling photographs documenting paramilitary violence in Panama as one of the reasons for the 1989 American intervention. And this is stuff that Ron talks about in the interview. His film work has appeared on PBS's Need to Know and Frontline, as well as NBC's Nightly News and ABC's World News Tonight. He's directed short films for ESPN, People Magazine, Doctors Without Borders, the Asia Society, and American Photography. So, in short, Ron Aviv has been at the front line of more or less all the world's major and indeed minor conflicts constantly for the past 30 years. He's one of the best there is at what he does, and he cares passionately about doing it. Please do enjoy my chat with Ron Aviv. <music> When you're doing these kind of workshops, what kind of th- things do people specifically kind of coming to you for? Are they are they the kind of people who are particularly interested in getting involved with the, the thing that you're very much known for, which is the kind of conflict side of stuff and, and, and that kind of work? No, I, I don't think most people are coming to these workshops to learn how to be a war photographer. I think the majority of people are young photographers who are trying to understand how to navigate in the world of photography, in the world of media, how to become successful, meaning how do they have the ability to make a living in order for them to be visual storytellers. So at this workshop, we, and given the amount of photographers that are here from Seven, there are a variety of different approaches based on our own personal experiences that we're able to share with the students to allow them to see that there are many different ways to become successful. I've heard you talk in the past about, um, you know, some of the early mistakes that you made, and I guess, you know, it's a way for you to pass on, maybe to to uh, allow people to, um, you know, have the benefit of your of your wisdom from experience. What what were the, some of those? What were some of those mistakes, uh, you know, that you were sort of referring to? Well, there there were many mistakes that I've made over my career, and. They range from mistakes in the field to not understanding for a long time how photography is a business to um, just you know choosing the wrong stories at the wrong time. There, there are lots of different things that could uh, damage a photographer's ability to to maintain a career, to be able to tell stories, and so I try to give a lecture that imparts that knowledge of just to save them time to learn from what I what I did right and what I did wrong and that ho- in the hope that they'll be able to be more successful uh, than I was but it's kind of amazing like even though I do give these these talks all over the world I then find out from students later such as something as basic as you should have camera insurance 
And I remember giving that talk and then a year later reading on Facebook that the photographer who was in my class got robbed, didn't have camera insurance and had to like start a Kickstarter campaign to get his to have people help him buy back his cameras. So, you know, it's it's all well and good to, to teach lessons, but it doesn't really help if the students don't listen to them. Yeah, right, right. But it's amazing how, you know, we're talking about some fairly basic stuff here. Um, it's not necessarily about taking pictures. It can be something incredibly practical like like you know that you know make sure you're insured yeah t- taking photographs is 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 obviously incredibly important but there are so many things that lead up to that and that are that are done after the photograph is taken in order to make that photography work a success and i think that one of the benefits of workshops like these it really teaches the young photographer all the different things that need to need to happen it's just not a matter of just sort of taking out your camera and immediately working and then all of a sudden you're published in the guardian or national geographic or something like that mm. well yeah and that's even in more perhaps more challenging than it than it ever used to be but you're you're quite you're quite optimistic about the, you know the way in which things have changed or, or the, the place we're at you've you've sort of said that um you know it's a great time to be a photographer that there are endless opportunities in a way there are absolutely um a huge amount of opportunities that have never existed before the first of course being that you know we are all now whether you're a professional photographer or not you're a publisher you have an audience whether through facebook instagram twitter or any other social media so this is a huge change where we as photographers now can directly publish to our audience and photographers there's some photographers and some at seven that are so successful that their audiences on social media are larger than actual publications so the ability to kind of skip the middleman in order to directly tell our story is first of all incredible other things that exist that are also make this a very exciting time is that we have the ability through digital photography and now also through audio and video and other capabilities to be full authors, to really direct uh, the story that we're telling directly to the audience, things that never really existed before until digital photography came about for news photography. For those of us working on assignment for Time or Newsweek magazine, we used to send rolls and rolls of film to, to the editor in New York or in Paris, and they would edit everything according to what they saw. Now in digital photography, the editor is the photographer first that also gives us great power that never existed before so it's very that, these things are very exciting mm, yeah that's a good point because although it's more work for you now you know that you have to do all that you've got more control you you're not ceding control to someone else as soon as that that film goes off to the picture absolutely desk. i mean I, it's still obviously it's it's a partnership it's it's there are other people involved in the final decisions on what gets seen when you're working for a publication but the fact that the photographer is shaping that edit uh, first in their in his or her own voice is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So you start started as a journalist or you studied journalism. You were going to, I presume you were thinking about writing. How did that transition into photography? Well, to be honest with you, I was thinking about trying to find a job that would allow me not to sit in an office. <laughs> right. So journalism seemed to be uh, seemed to be it, but I didn't really understand what it meant when I was studying what it meant to be a journalist. And I was sort of bombarded with photography uh, from a few different places. While I was at school, my uncle gave me a camera. A good friend of mine was a serious hobby photographer, so I was seeing photography through him, and I wound up working uh, for a fashion photographer to help pay for school. 
at some point I decided I'd rather be a photojournalist. Why? I'm not really sure, but that was the decision I made. I graduated and then kind of you know self-taught and got lucky very quickly. Mm. In what sense did you get lucky? Well, I got lucky first that I was given an internship where I worked for free and I started to get an education about how newspapers worked. And then I entered this world of photojournalism where older, more experienced photographers kind of put their arm around me and helped me get new work and helped me do this and that. And then uh, I met a photographer who's also one of the co-founders of Seven named Chris Morris. And Chris um, gave me a plane ticket to go cover a story with him. And I wound up getting the cover of Time and Newsweek and mm. other magazines around the world with that with that coverage and that all of a sudden kind of propelled my at least my name into recognition within the industry at that point. Yeah, this was Panama. It was. Yeah, and um, you, you took a, uh, yeah, an image which, you know, is kind of almost an iconic still. Um, well, tell us a little bit about it for people who haven't seen that picture. Well, the story is quite simple at the time. It's 1989, so obviously a long time ago, but uh, sort of the dictator of the moment was a man named General Manuel Noriega who was leading Panama. Panama was an important country for the world because of the canal, important country for America because the Americans had a military base there and Noriega was sort of getting a little bit uh, out of control. He'd been sort of a CIA puppet for a while. Noriega decided to hold elections um, to prove to the world that he was loved by his people. He held the elections, he lost the elections, he canceled the results. And the would-be victors came out onto the street to basically start an uprising. And I managed to take a photograph of the vice president-elect um, who was covered in blood, having been stabbed, and, and his bodyguard having been killed trying to protect him, uh, being beaten up by a paramilitary uh, thug supporting Noriego with an iron pipe. And the photograph was very dramatic and wound up on the cover of Time and various newspapers around the world. Mm. So that was the kind of... Oh, baptism by fire in a way, but it was also a kind of indication of, um, were you aware at the time that that it was going to be a big moment in terms of your career? Or was did that come, that, that realization come later? No, the realization at that point, still not understanding exactly what I was doing and what the power of journalism and photography was, the most immediate part was it was really about my career. I was like, this photojournalism thing's not that hard. You right. go someplace, you take pictures, you get covers, everybody knows your name, become famous, make lots of money, etc. But six months later, when the United States invaded Panama, the President of the United States spoke about the photograph as one of the justifications for the invasion. And it wasn't whether or not I agreed with the invasion or not. It was the understanding at that point when I heard him say that, that the photography that I do, that my colleagues do, ability to put this work out there into the conversation into having impact mm. um, was something I never thought of before that it wasn't about me it wasn't about covers it certainly wasn't about money or prizes but it was about the stories that we were covering and this ability to tell the world what was happening and then the world to make decisions based on that and I was like wow that that's actually a pretty interesting way to spend spend my time yeah but also kind of you must have if when the president you know is talking about your picture um that must have felt like a, a real kind of almost a weight of um of a responsibility absolutely i think responsibility is is a key um key part of this so i think it's a privilege one to do it but it's also a very important responsibility that i take very seriously in the idea that 
whatever story I'm doing, whoever I'm photographing, is that I am representing them and their story to the world. I am basically allowing the world to see something they normally wouldn't see. So that has to be done uh, very consciously and very properly. Mm. So, I mean, I guess we should talk um, about the Balkans, you know, about the uh, conflict uh, in Bosnia. Uh, what first took you to that um well, but I mean, Bosnia was the third war, uh, and so I went actually a little bit earlier than that. So reading a small piece in the New York Times about this place called Yugoslavia, which I didn't really know much about except the Olympics had been there in 84, but, and that people had thought that Yugoslavia was going to make this transition in this new world order after the Soviet Union fell. They were going to make a very successful transition, but there was like rumblings of this idea about nationalism and it might break apart, and if it breaks apart, it might do so violently. And so at that point, I was with an agency called Saba, and so we spoke, myself and the, and the head of the company called Marcel Saba, and we said, let's just go see what's happening. As I arrived, Slovenia, the first republic, seceded, and there was a short, very short war, but a bit violent. And once I was on the ground, I started to understand that unless there was actual heavy-handed intervention from the West, this was going to sort of fall like dominoes. And, and everybody that was on the ground, plus all the diplomats, and everybody kind of saw it would go from Slovenia to Croatia to Bosnia to Kosovo, and then after that possibly even wind up bringing in other countries if it spirals out of control. And that's exactly what happened, and I just followed it from there. So from Slovenia, I went to Croatia, from Croatia to Bosnia, from Bosnia to Kosovo, and, and so on. Mm. I mean, so, and so you ended up, I think you ended up testifying against some of the, you know, people who committed the war crimes. So it's almost like a continuation of, of what you were saying before that, you know, that you're there to, uh, you know, that's kind of a t testimony. Your, your pictures, are, you know, and your, you know, your story is, is part of uh, your recording, you know, stuff for the sake of the people who've been uh, affected. Yeah. Yeah. So the work, um, a number of images that I took during the, the conflict in Bosnia were used in the, um, international um, trial at The Hague in the ICTY uh, to indict and then to convict uh, a number of people. In fact, actually, there's a trial, the last trial going on now where the work is being used uh, against uh, two um, Serbian government officials. Right. So still, even 20 years later, it's still... We're talking about, you know, 20, 26 years 26 later. 26 years later, yeah. The work is still being used. Uh, yeah. How did you deal with... The emotional fallout from, you know, taking uh, taking the kind of pictures you were taking and uh, being involved in the kind of situations that you were involved in. The, the famous picture that you took of, of of a soldier kicking the corpse of a woman who'd been shot minutes beforehand. Um, you kind of mentioned in the past that you know what, what one can't be too detached, but you've got to be. Um, you, you know, you have to walk that line between emotional engagement and being able to do the work. How do you sort of walk that line? Uh, I mean, there's actually even a more, another part of that line where, um, you know, when, you're, when we are put in these situations where there's life and death happening in front of us, there are also these moments where we have to decide, can we intervene uh, to help? At least I have to decide, can I intervene to help save the person uh, because my own sort of moral idea about this is that I'm a human being first and a photographer second. So there have been situations where 
I've been able to stop someone from being killed or beaten up or arrested without myself you know, coming to harm. And so I've done so. But there have been times also where people have been executed in front of me and it was apparent that there was nothing that I could do uh, to stop it. And when that happens, you try to make sure that you come out with the, with evidence of what's what's happened. Otherwise, what's the point of being there at all? Then it becomes like you're almost like a voyeur. Right? Mm. So I want to make so that's very difficult because there have been times where uh, during the war in Croatia, for instance, where I was in a town called Vukovar, which had been under siege for months. And as the city was falling, I was with the victorious troops, and they were pulling people out and executing them in front of me. And I tried, one, I couldn't stop it because they were doing it right in front of me, so they didn't care that I was there. And as I lifted up my camera at one point to document the evidence of what had happened, guns were put to my head, and I was told if I take a picture, they'll kill me. And I made a promise to myself at that point, like if that ever happened again, I would have to do whatever I could to make sure if I couldn't stop uh, the killings from happening, then I would have to make sure there was photographic evidence to hold people accountable. And a few months later, winding up in Bosnia, finding myself in a very similar position as well-armed paramilitaries executed unarmed middle-aged you know, Bosnian Muslim uh, civilians. And um, at that point, it was, you know, it was very difficult. They were telling me, the soldiers, paramilitaries, were telling me, don't take any photographs. And I managed to, at one point, hide and take some photographs while the people were still alive. But then I realized that I didn't have photographic evidence of the soldiers, the paramilitaries who are known as the Tigers and the victims, um, uh, who were um, Asya Sabanovich and the Pazmachi family, um, the husband and wife. I needed the soldiers and the victims in the same frame. So at that point, I couldn't hide. Actually, I had to go and sort of stand in the middle of the street. And I just wanted a picture of them walking by. And for whatever reason, this young young soldier, paramilitary guy, known now now a DJ in Belgrade, um, came came from my left and did what he did. And I took a couple of frames. Nobody, neither of the three soldiers, none of the three soldiers, saw me take the photograph. And and that was it. Mm. Um, but the whole time, I was obviously first of incredibly emotional, having seen people executed in front of me. And then, of course, also terrified that they would, I was the witness, and that they would somehow turn on me. And luckily, they didn't. Yeah, so you did take a chance there. People might be laboring under the misapprehension that as a, as a, as a sort of, you know, experienced war guy, you're not, don't know that there's no fear or that, uh, you know, you're somehow, you know, emotionally detached from the situation. But that isn't true, right? Uh, I'm pretty much when going into a conflict area. I'm as soon as the flight, the plane leaves the New York area, until the plane comes back to the New York area. I am in a constant state of fear, and the key is, at least for me, is learning how to use that fear to make sure that I don't make stupid and rash decisions, but at the same time ensuring that the fear doesn't paralyze me to the point where I'm unable to work. Because if I'm unable to work, then there's absolutely no reason for me to be there. And it's not just fear, it's being emotional, covering you know very brutal moments, famines, things like that, where it's like, this is really horrific. And while I might and should be and am emotional while photographing, I cannot let the emotion overcome me at that point. The emotion overcomes me once the job is over. Once I'm back in a safe place, then I can break down and cry and process 
what I've just witnessed. But it's incredibly important to remain focused while doing the job, while photographing and documenting. But at the same time, I cannot be a robot. I mean, it would be very easy to completely turn off all emotions, but my opinion is that once the photographer does that, that comes across in the photography. So I have to feel something in order for it to come through the way I'm documenting the situation in order for the viewer to feel something. Mm-hmm. But you've talked a little bit also about you know the, the process of reacclimatizing back to, n- to normality, which is the other problem that you then face. So you know, you've got the fear while you're there, and then, and then you've also got something else to deal with when you get back. Can you sort of give us a sense of what that is like to have to come back to normality from, from you know, such an extreme situation? And I don't know, maybe there are even incidences or specific memories that you have from your own life of, you know, of that situation. Sure. I mean, I think first of all, it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, I'm going to these places by choice. I'm volunteering to go. So nobody's forcing me to go and I'm not a victim. I might have difficult experiences once in these places, but it's nothing compared to the people that I'm photographing who don't have the option to just flash a passport, get on a plane and go. So this is there's nothing about like pitying or feeling sorry for the photographer and so sure. on. So while it is difficult as a human being to witness this, you know, it's up to me to figure out how to lead my life and be able to function. And so, to be honest with you, it took a number of years to understand, like, coming back to New York from a war zone and how to acclimate myself to my New York life, to my partner, to whoever, um, and be able to function. And one of the problems is, I think, very often for journalists, photographers that work in these areas is that you wind up thinking that war is the normal state of being. And actually, it's not. Your normal state of being is life in wherever you live. And if you don't acknowledge that you need to transition back, then when somebody comes to you and says, well, there's a problem with the cable TV, and you're like, why would I care about the cable TV? Somebody just died. That's such a radical and inappropriate conversation is one world has nothing to do with the other in in that sense. And so as soon as I acknowledged that it was my responsibility to reacclimate, not the people around me to go, oh, he was in a war and he's so special and so on. And when I realized like I need to be like, yes, it's a problem that you had an argument with the dry cleaner is an actual like day in thing that you know you have to pay attention to versus that doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, um, then it, it became much easier. Uh, the idea is to try to make sure that you, you, me, my contribution with my photography is trying to enable people not to be in a constant state of war. But that doesn't mean that I need to be in a constant state of war. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was thinking about something someone said on uh, a program which um, you were featured in about, you know, you and your colleagues. And uh, the guy said, um, referring to, I guess, war photographers in general, said, um, you know, that the, they're looking for something and either they find it or they get killed. Um, do you think there's any truth in that? I, I wasn't a big fan of that quote. I think that's a bit a bit extreme and a bit sort of overly dramatic. It's that a we're bit melodramatic, All on yeah. some sort of mission and, and we'll kill ourselves if we if we don't find it. I think, look, it's, everybody has their own reasons for doing uh, this type of work, and it's not all altruistic, without question. And for me, yes, I want to amplify voices that aren't being heard. I want to help. I want to participate. 
but I also want to see, for me, I want to see history myself. I want to have the privilege uh, to tell and show people my interpretation of history, to watch countries being born, countries dying, to watch Nelson Mandela walk out of prison or be in Baghdad when the statue comes down or at Gaddafi's compound when it falls on the you know non-altruistic side. Those are amazing experiences. I'm not a big believer in this idea of addiction, adrenaline addiction, because it's not that much fun to be shot at. But the addiction to kind of witnessing history, yeah, maybe like mm. that is a little bit more legitimate. But that's my own sort of personal non-altruistic reason why. And I think those are necessary. I think just, I don't think there's any photographers out there just for the people. I think that's a huge part of it. But you still have to have more, uh, something more, other desires. Mm. But whether or not that's going to wind up like leading everybody down some dark rabbit hole, I don't think that's true either. I think there are many photographers and journalists that cover conflict, that have, have families and are happily married when they come back and so on. It's just a matter of understanding how, how to work it for, for yourself. And, and I think so. I think while there's this cliche version of the hardened, whether photographer or journalist, you know, you know, drinking or doing drugs and so on because they can't uh, survive outside the war, there are definitely people like that, but the majority of people have figured, figured it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess to, 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 you know, if you're looking at the long game and you want to have a career that lasts, you know, in the way that you have and Ed Cashy has and, you know, lots of your other colleagues, uh, yeah, you've got to figure out your strategy for carrying it on. Ha have things changed for you over the years? I mean, as time goes by, are you, um, are you slowing down at all or are you still, you know, fully motivated to, to kind of keep going? Uh, well, I, w I don't think I'd use the, the phrase slowing down, but I think I'm becoming more specific, I mean, especially in terms of conflict, about where I devote my time in terms of, like, overall projects and things that I have to say. I actually think it's increasing finding more more ideas, different ways uh, to talk about that, working now more also in documentary film and other, other types of, of mediums to reach audiences in ways I've never been able to reach before, using the same themes about raising awareness, about human rights abuses, and, and so on. But sort of the idea of sort of going off to every front line that happens just because there happens to be fighting there, I'm not doing that. But I think when there's important stories like Arab Spring and where there's real moments of human history being created, then I'm trying to be there. Mm. Ed Cashy was talking a little bit about just fatigue really you know sort of literal physical fatigue and also a kind of you know i don't know existential <laughs> fatigue or mental fatigue is that something you have uh you know have faced and if so how do you how do you kind of go through those phases uh, you know the kind of ebbing and flowing of your enthusiasm for it i suppose I think, yeah, I think we, it's, it's normal. I mean, no matter what kind of job you have, you're going to have those kind of experiences. I think the, first of all, the sort of the extreme of that being post-traumatic stress syndrome, which is um, a real thing that affects um, people that document war, go through traumatic experiences. So I would think for sure that I've experienced PTSD um, at some point, especially during the uh, last Iraq war. And... It's, I think the, the best 
way to to deal with those things is to confront them, understand that they're happening, speak with your colleagues, and speak with professionals, and try to move forward from there, which is what I did, and I think certainly have um, been able to figure out the proper way to take care of myself both mentally, emotionally, and physically. And I think that, that one of the things that's changed over the course of my career um, is that while PTSD has always existed, there was no real acknowledgement from both the people suffering from it as well as the industry itself. So it was sort of hidden or not even understood. And now through the works of a Canadian um, doctor named Dr. Anthony Feinstein, who basically came out with a study that said that journalists suffer from the same percentage of PTSD than soldiers do, um, there's been this acceptance of making sure that people are in good shape to be able to, you know, go to a war zone, come back, reacclimate, and then go back if they want to. And that's been a pretty uh, amazing change for the positive. Mm. And I mean, do you, are you still motivated by a sort of anger at injustice? Yeah, sadly, that, that has not diminished. I mean, that is something that is incredibly frustrating. I mean, what has happened, having been doing this now for 30 years, is that you start to see the, uh, the replication and the cyclical nature of human beings. Of what, so you're seeing the same thing, using, of course, use Syria as an example. Where so it's sort of same, same shit, different place, yeah. kind of, yeah. Which is not, but, but doesn't diminish the, the issue at all. Um, it's but on on a bigger scale it just shows you that people we haven't learned our lessons yet but at the same time you can't ignore it you can't just say oh well it's just happening again that's just the way things are and I think it's important that we as a collective make sure that these stories are being told because we can still have impact on individuals lives on the ground and make them better mm. does your conviction that that photography can does make a difference waiver it becomes more realistic i think that and i've never believed that even when the president in the united states spoke about the panama photograph it was not i was never under the belief that an invasion was taking place because of a photograph it was that just that it was part of that conversation so i don't believe that a photograph can can stop a war but i do think that it can have actual real impact and i i say this because i'm now currently uh, directing a documentary film called Biography of a Photo with a colleague, uh, Dr. Lauren Walsh. And we're looking at my photograph from Panama and my photograph from Bosnia and treating it as a biography of each image. Uh, and looking at the impact that 25 and 26 years later, each image has had not only on the people involved in each photograph, but on politics, on art, on education, on propaganda, and how they become intertwined in the collective history of each nation. And so there are these times when photographs actually take on a life of their own and completely go beyond me. Like people utilize my photo these two photographs without ever speaking to me. They make they, they make them into art installations, they were made into posters, they were um, being used in war crimes. And we have two individual people, one in Panama and one in Bosnia, who are using the photograph to get justice for people that were killed um, in connection with the photograph. Mm. So when I hear stories like that, I am absolutely reaffirmed that the impact of photography is incredibly powerful. Now, while it might not affect and stop a conflict from happening, the ability for any of us 
to affect lives outside of our immediate circle, outside our family and friends, is pretty rare. Very few people do that, you may, unless you, know, you donate to a charity and so on. But most times, like everything we do is within a very small circle. So what we do as photographers is ability to put work out there that will make somebody think differently, vote differently, donate differently, or do something differently because they've learned something from that photograph. That shows the power uh, of photography. Mm. That's a fascinating idea. Was that your idea to, to you know, do, do the biography of a, of a photograph? How did that come about? It came about uh, uh, Dr. Walsh's writing a book about uh, conflict photography, and we were talking about some of the the impact that I had already known about these two photographs. And then we're like, well, I wonder what else happened because maybe there's more. And so we started to do some research and then we found all these other things that I'd never known about talking to uh, a general, um, a Serbian general who told us that he saw the photograph um, when he had to decide what side of the war he was gonna fight on and realized that he couldn't fight on behalf of his ethnic brethren and I think it's part of, it's not the only reason they did this, but it was one of the things that pushed him towards fighting on behalf of the Bosnian Muslim side, and he was credited with saving Sarajevo. Right. So you see how photography, again, not taking full credit for it, but being part of that process, and all of a sudden what he did, and then he saved a million people. You know, So to even be somewhere along that chain mm. is amazing for a photograph, incredible. Yeah. When's that going to see the light of day then? Is there I expect that it should be wrapping up uh, filming this year and hopefully will be out by next year. Oh, that's great. There's a lot of kind of um, issues around ethics these days. I don't know if this is uh, a new thing. Maybe you, you've got a view on it, but there have been um, incidences of um, people um, who primarily have entered competitions and you know captioned images um dishonestly or or being called out for you know manipulation that is excessive or um you know also dishonest is that a new thing do you think no i don't think it's i don't think it's a new thing i think it is becoming more apparent given the transparency and viral world that we live in so i think that there are certain rules within the journalism sphere itself that people, when they're in that circle, they need to adhere to. Proper captioning is one of the key things. Mm -hmm. I mean, saying what town X took place in is, is important. Saying why this man has a gun is important. And I think that whether in contests or in publications uh, with journalism, text is important. And so I think we have to remember, you know, the word is photojournalism. The journalism part of it is is still very important. Mm. So some people <clears throat> have suggested that it m might be the sort of pressure of entering competitions that has kind of prompted people to, you know, overstep the, the mark. Um, do you, th you think the industry is a little overly obsessed with competitions and contests? Uh, I don't think it's anything probably more than has existed before to some degree. I think it's it's part of uh, the marketing of both the contests and individual photographers. And I think the photographers, given the, the difficulty of making a living in this business, that people are trying to figure out any way that they can to rise above the other. And contests happen to be uh, one of those ways. But 
is it different? I don't know. I think, you know, when you look back at the history of photography where, you know, in certain places, newspapers and wire services, they would have, working in the dark room, they would have cutouts of soccer balls and golf balls that they would then paste into a photograph to make it a better sports picture. I mean, yeah. This is unfortunately um, the nature of human beings and it's been the nature of photography. I mean, Photoshop, one of the key parts about Photoshop is not necessarily that it allows us as photographers to do more, but it actually opens the curtain behind what it takes to make a photograph look a certain way to the public. Mm. The public didn't understand for the majority what happens in a dark room. It was a mystery. The mystery is gone. So mm. transparency now is, is incredibly important uh, when you're working in journalism because the public is already so suspicious because they know how easy it is. They do it on their phone all the time. To manip how to change a, sun a sunrise into a sunset, how to make something look completely different with a couple of swipes on the phone. So each time one of us breaks that contract with the public by manipulating a photograph or changing a caption to say something else, we do damage. And at some point when the, the public no longer believes any of the work that they're seeing from us, then it becomes very difficult to do anything because nobody believes what you're saying. Mm. Well, you embroiled in your own controversy at one point because um, there was a certain amount of um, discussion over an image of yours that was used. It was one of your pictures from Afghanistan. It was actually was a spread in, in your book, your Afghanistan book, and your commercial agent sold that picture as a stock photograph to Lockheed Martin, who are the arms company, I think the p biggest arms company in the world. And they then added some smoke and, you know, uh, did their own little thing. And, and that, that um, was used as an advertisement to sell bombs, essentially. Is that not ethically problematic for, for a war photographer to have, you know, a relationship with a, an arms company? I, I can absolutely see why people feel uncomfortable about that, but I have to also go back to what I've been, let's use the war in Yugoslavia, for example, where the reason many of us were out there day in and day out telling the story was that we wanted there to be an intervention, and it had to be military intervention. I also, f so when it came to like, do I support arms com companies or am I against them, it would be hypocritical I think for myself, for me to say, oh, I'm only, I'm again, I'm a pacifist. War should never happen. I'm not a pacifist. I'm a realist, and my belief is more about détente, and my belief is more about the fact that there are times when evil people need to be stopped, and it has to be done militarily. So, I say that because when it came to the point where whether or not I was would sell a photograph to an arms dealer. I don't have a problem with, I don't think arms dealers are the evil of the world. I think they're a reality. And so on that aspect, it didn't really bother me. Mm. The second part of that was that it was taking, it wasn't taking an advertising image and using it as journalism. It was taking a journalistic image and transferring it into a world of advertising, which works in a completely different world. And the fact that the photograph has no credit in the advertisement. It's only associated to me by a recognition that I, the photographer, took this photograph. Also allowed me to feel like I didn't think that there was a real issue with it. I don't 
I understand why people were upset, but I honestly don't think any ethical lines for myself were crossed. I can understand why people say arms dealers are the worst people in the world. I don't actually agree with that, but I can understand the argument uh, for it, and I can stand the argument against it. But in terms of kind of using that argument which people have to essentially state that all the work that I've ever done is no longer valid, I think that's extreme. And I think it's unfair not only to myself, but more unfair to all the stories that I've done to say like, oh, because I had an image that was used in an advertisement, um, therefore my journalism is no longer valid. It's a bit extreme. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the majority of people would, would, would go that far, but you can see why it was problematic for some people. I, I absolutely could, but, you know, this is, for me, it's a different world. And there's also, um, given that I, I don't have an issue with them as a company, um, and I think that asking at times during my career for there to be military intervention, which is what we were all doing in Bosnia, for example, and other places as well, that's where the weapons come from. They come from this company. Mm. Yeah, somebody's got to make them kind of thing, yeah. I wanted to ask you about a particular image because I, I it's always nice to get the story behind certain pictures. And I, you've, there are so many I could ask you about, but I wanted to ask you the, the, about the one of the Afghanistan, the commander um, dying mm -hmm. um, of a gunshot wound. Can you, and, I, and I'd like to maybe use that one as the accompanying picture for the podcast. Um, could you t talk to me a little bit about you know, the, the circumstances around that photograph? Of course. Uh, that was taken um, several days after Kabul semi-officially fell uh, to the Northern Alliance from the, um, against the Taliban. There was continued to be fighting all around Afghanistan. And there was, um, in a place called Mainanchar, which was right outside of Kabul, um, a Taliban offensive and myself and other uh, journalists went there to document it. And we arrived in the Northern Alliance where this ragtag group of guys with everything from swords to RPGs and so on. And it was sort of a very much one of these scenes that I was sort of made up from a fi fiction film. I mean, it looked incredible. And there was great plains and mountains and, and so on. And all of a sudden, the Northern Alliance has sort of made a charge down this plane. And even though I've taken the hostile environment courses and consider myself rather experienced in conflict, I got caught up along with my colleagues in the excitement of the moment, and we all ran off with them, various photographers going off in different places. With a bunch of people who had no idea what they were doing, um, which is never a good thing. No. Until we reached a point and realized that we had been lured into an ambush and that the Taliban were in the hills above us and started to shoot down. In that plane were craters made by American bombings and a group of Afghan soldiers, including a commander who I had already met earlier in that day, jumped into a hole and Tyler Hicks, a photographer from the New York Times, and I jumped in with them. And there's nothing worse than being in a position where you have no cover. People can see you and they're photographing from above. And it was a very strange um, few moments. And I can't actually tell you in reality how long it was, but it seemed incredibly long. But there was enough time for Tyler and I, who were trying to dig as deep a hole as possible, to basically tell each other, if I die, tell my 
my partner this and, and so on. So it had gotten actually quite serious. We were definitely expecting the worst, and the worst did happen moments later, but not to us, but to the commander who was shot um, in the neck. And he was bleeding, and they were trying, his colleagues were trying uh, to save him. And I went to take a photograph, and I, I went to take the photograph, and while it was an incredibly poignant moment, having been with him earlier and how he was appreciative that we were there documenting their fight against the Taliban, I felt very, um, not comfortable, but that there was an understanding, like there was a reason why we were there and there was a reason why this photograph needed to be taken. But it was a very um, difficult photograph to take. As I didn't know how seriously hurt he was. It was very hard to tell what was happening, but it is a pretty mm. um, powerful moment. And then but you felt you had his sort of tacit approval in a way. In a way. No, yeah. absolutely. If, if I had felt that he, when we had met him earlier, he's like, I don't want you here, leave us, you know, you shouldn't be here, or there was any kind of negative uh, interaction before, then I don't think I would have taken that photograph mm -hmm. But at that, at that moment, uh, given that it was a quiet moment, and he was basically just looking at me and so on. But I did feel like that was, that was his last um, giving to what he believed in, what he was fighting for. Mm. Um, so I thought that that was, in my in my opinion, that was it. W it was fine. That's what I. That's what I felt. Yeah. And how, what happened then? How did you get out of that situation? Because you were, and what you've basically saying is you were sitting ducks, effectively. You know, Absolutely. in a very literal way. I mean, fi the fighting in Afghanistan is always very strange, and, and this is no exception. So, first of all, the more important thing was not getting us out; was getting him out. And they were arguing amongst themselves, and finally, there was a lull in the shooting, and they basically, two of his guys just stood up, one threw him over the shoulder, and they literally, not ran out, they walked out, and, and that was it. And my Tyler and I looked at each other going, oh, okay, it must be over, so we'll go. And we got up, and then the shooting started again, and then we had to drop back down, and then we made a couple more false moments trying to get out and one, one of us fell and then we fell back into the hole. It was a little bit more of a, you know, a comedy show at that time. And then finally we just, we made, we made a run for it. And for whatever reason, you know, the, the, whoever, whoever shot the commander from whatever position, either it was a lucky shot or they were really good and they decided that they didn't want to shoot us because while they were shooting at us while we were running, they, they obviously we were both, we were both fine, but it was a, it was an incredibly stupid uh, position to be in, and also just even having taken the courses and been told never to do what we did, there are times where you're just kind of paying attention to the photograph mm -hmm. more than anything else, and and we were very lucky yeah. um, that we weren't killed. Yeah, well, this is a good example of how you know there are times when I mean that there are things that are out of your control, you know, and that that's just you know you're in the kind of lap of the gods. I mean, like you say, maybe a, a decision was made by the guy, you know, with the gun that he wasn't going to shoot you, but could have gone the other way. It could have, but in the end, actually, it wasn't our control, and we just made the wrong choice. I mean, we right. should never have got. We should just you shouldn't never have been, been in there. that. We never situation. should have been there. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you about um, the lost rolls. Tell me a little bit about that, that project. It's a, it's a book project um, that you did, and it uh, revolves around some Lost Rolls of Film. So, you know, maybe you could explain how it came about. So the Lost Rolls project was one of these projects where kind of 
we were looking for something to do. And so a, a publisher came to me and said, do you have anything interesting that we can that we can um, do a book with you about? And I kind of thought about it. And I had... Um, can I just interrupt there? Sure. Just to say that that's a very nice position to be in and not, not one that many people find no, themselves in where... Absolutely. You know, somebody's willing to invest money in uh, And in come to you. Yeah, sorry. It was very... Yeah, absolutely. No, it was very, um, very exciting. And I had... Um, Found some found some film and and didn't want to spend the money to process it. So I said, "Oh well, if you guys want to pay for this, let's let's see what's on the film." This was Blurb. This was Blurb. Mm. Yeah, who wanted to um, show off their new offset printing? So it was a bit of a marketing thing on their part and and something for me to do. And basically, it wound up that uh, well, I said I have like thirty or forty rolls of film. They said, "Okay, let's take a look at it. We process it. Like, oh, this is interesting." And I said, you know what, I have another 30 or 40 rolls. Do you guys want to process that? Okay, let's process that. And then they started to get excited and go, well, I said, you know, I have another 140 rolls of film. Um, do you want to process that? So the question is, of course, how did I wind up with so much film? That is the question. Right. So it's not actually that much film when you think about it. So I've been a photographer at that point for 20, over 25 years. Right. So when you divide it up by that time, now we're talking about maybe six or seven rolls of film per year that were not developed. And the reason why the film wasn't developed is a couple... It uh, goes into a couple parts. The first part is when I was a young photographer starting out and had no money and was working multiple jobs and working for free um, in photography, I would try to do a story and I would pitch the idea to a publication. And if they weren't interested, then I wouldn't process the film because I couldn't afford to. Right. So that would sort of be put aside. Oh, when I have money later, I'll, I'll do that. And then as time went on and I started to get assignments from publications, I would be told, okay, shoot this in 35 millimeter color. Okay, great, but you know what? I'm gonna take along a Mamiya 6.7 and shoot black and white as an alternative and offer it to the client. The client would say, no, we're good with color. We don't wanna even process your black and white. All right, I'll develop that film later. And then of course, you know, in the days of you know running your film through airports and so on, oh, that film's gone through the x-ray machine too many times. I have no idea what's on it. I'll put it aside, right, right. and so on. So then it quickly winds up building up to more than 200 rolls of film, of which some of them had things on it that said like Somalia or Iraq written on the canister. But the majority of it, I didn't know what it was. And so, well, the project began as this idea of just like, let's just see what fun pictures might be on this film. It very quickly became this conversation about memory and photography. So for myself, I'm often asked, do you take, uh, do you have journals from your work or the things that you experience? And I would usually just say, no, I, I don't. I have, um, I, have my f I have my images and I can tell you, we can look at an image and I can tell you what happened that day, what happened before, what happened afterwards. Because I'm totally connected to the memory connected to that photograph. And as these photographs, uh, as I saw these new photographs, I didn't have that immediate solidification of the memory in the photograph by looking at it within a short period of time after taking it. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at imagery and I don't remember who the people are and I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm looking at. I'm like, did I take this picture? Is this mine? It must be mine. I, I have the film. And all of a sudden, there was this disconnect. So all of a sudden, gaps in my own personal memory were popping up being created by seeing this work that I had never seen before. I mean, some stuff was different variations on f photographs I had already 
taking like a panoramic version of a 35 millimeter and so on, but there were a number of photographs I didn't know about. And I thought that was really fascinating. It became this kind of conversation about what role does photography play in our lives, in our memory, and so on. And so we did this book. I was very, I wrote about the things I remembered. I wrote about the things I didn't remember. And it was this kind of very kind of personal look, both at my professional photographs and per personal life, ex-girlfriends, family, etc. And then as I gave the book tour, I would ask people, how many of you have a roll of film that has images on it, but you've never processed for whatever reason? Many people stopped processing their film when the local lab disappeared. And they figured that's it. And they threw the camera in the drawer, the roll of film in the drawer, and just forgot about it. And I started to realize, as I, and this was in the American market, talking to Americans, and they'd be like, more than half the people literally from age 18 to age 80 would say, I have a roll of film. I have no idea what to do with it. So I created the sort of second part of the project called Lost Rolls America, where I asked Fujifilm to come on board as a partner and Photo Shelter, which is a website that works with photographers and Photo Wings, which is an educational um, NGO for photography to support the project. And we're now asking people that either um, are Americans um, that have photographed around the world or Americans that live in America to contribute uh, their imagery. We process and scan it for free. It gets to a private website that only the person sees. And then we ask them to choose one or two images and then write about it. Mm. Well, what are their memories about, about the photographs? And we're creating this public curated archive called Lost Worlds America. And if this is successful, we'll take that on to other countries. And what has been incredibly fascinating, or the two fascinating parts about this, ex this project, is that one, people are writing the most honest, amazing things. Like one woman writes about, there's a photograph of her as a young mother with her husband, and she writes about something saying to the effect of, I was in love, I was so in love once, what went wrong? And then that's it, like what, like, what is she talking about? We have another photograph, the oldest photograph in the archive from 1950 taken in post-war Germany of a Soviet refugee being put on, a uh, put on a truck with her luggage to come to America. And then we followed up with her and her family and found out this whole story that this one roll of film followed the, the family back to America, sat in a suitcase, kind of a Robert Kappa Mexican suitcase, for 60-some years until they heard about the project and then sent the film in developed the film, half the story, half the family didn't know the story of how the, the mother, grandmother came to, the, to America, and now have created this whole conversation among this extended family uh, that immigrated to America, all based on, on the image. Mm. So it's been really, really interesting in that aspect, and the other part of it is that in the United States, in that sort of our post-Trump world, where we are being told as Americans, how divided we are politically. And if you're divided politically, you're divided in every other way, right? So there's one, America's this part and that part. When people read the experiences, um, they start to understand that actually the American experience is much more, means much more being, being much more alike than different. And so I, we had an exhibition where we, we get this retro uh, camper is, and we put the photographs in the camper to kind of emulate this American experience. 
and one woman came up to a photograph, an African-American woman, and looked at a photograph of two uh, young white kids where the mother wrote something about being a mom. And she's like, yeah, that's my experience. Colorblind, genderblind, um, economic blind, it's just like, it's that universal uh, experience. And in some cases, very specific American experience. So we're hoping uh, with this project, which will turn into a national tour, an educational program, that we can kind of, in this time of great division in the United States, remind people in actuality that we're all more alike than different. Mm. That's great, and I lo- it's a great example of, of um, you know something from this little acorn of an idea, you know, kind of expanding out into something that you never would have expected. Yeah, absolutely. But in terms of your own memory, it sounds to me like your own memory is pretty good generally. I mean, like you've been to what a hundred countries or something over the years, I and mean, some, some, that must sometimes just blur into 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 one big experience. Or, or do you, you know, is it very specific? It, it, it varies, but it really, this, the the book itself, the Lost Rolls, the original book of it, which is about my work was actually um, really shook me mm. because I really something I really believed in that like I knew what I'd done in my life and now all of a sudden I'm looking at photographs I mean I can probably do more research by what people are wearing and so on but there's there's stuff there that I photographed that I really I have no idea who these people are or what's happening and that's I mean it's something I have to live with but it's incredibly disconcerting mm. and really shook my belief that my photography was my diary. Right. So it remains so if I'm able to immediately make a connection. And now also, of course, we're talking about the analog era, but now in the digital era where every photograph has a date, every photograph has time, and now in many cases also has location, you know, that idea of not, of not knowing doesn't, it's not really possible anymore, which, mm. is, which is nice. Mm. Yeah, it's like, like Randy Newman's got this, this things about God bless the potholes on memory lane, you know, that there are these kind of right. um, gaps, you know, that I guess we all have. But also, I'm thinking, you know, in 50 years time, that, that, that romanticism of finding a roll of film and then the mist, you know, then kind of revealing the mystery of it when you process it, well, obviously will be, will be gone because it will be just images on computer and hard drives. Well, in some ways, though, because people are, are taking so many photographs that it's in, in essence, even though they might be seeing it immediately, they're often quickly forgetting their own images and they're getting buried as more and more layers get piled up. So in some ways, not the lost roles, but the lost images still exist even digitally. Mm. Because, yeah, you know, you ask somebody, how many images do you have on your phone? And people are saying, I have 10,000, I have 20,000. They have no idea what those pictures are from. Right, yeah. I mean, they don't remember it, but if you pull it up, it'll, you'll immediately be refreshed. Yeah. But in terms of connected to something, it's different. Mm. So what has um, being a photographer taught you about yourself over the years? Oh, that's a good question. I would think that it's, I mean, it's allowed me to express and satisfy my curiosity to be able to move around. I think throughout my pre-photographic life, I've always been one who's been able to kind of never be part of just one group, but be able to move from group to group. Um, So it's the same kind of idea within photography itself. So one day I'm with the President of the United States, the next day I'm with some rebel warlord in the Congo, right? So to be able to kind of mix with those type of people Um, So sort of showing my sort of chameleon-esque type of uh, behavior um, comes across very well in photography. But I think that it's been really 
just really kind of quenching the thirst to understand like how the world that we live in, how it works, and what's the reality uh, behind the scenes. And then having the ability to, to tell the story. Um, so I think there's that desire, while not to be in front of the camera, there's still this desire to have some sort of impact, right? To have a legacy. Uh, so I think that it's not, I think it's something that I, I will, remains with me in my work that I don't want to sort of like, as soon as I die, that the work just disappears along with it. I want there to be, I want it to have life beyond me. Ron, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, appreciate the time you've given me to talk. And uh, yeah, it was great to meet you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.